Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the first Geek Warning episode of 2024, the show where we filter through all the latest happenings in the bicycle tech world so you know what's junk and what's not. I'm James Huang, and I'm here today in our virtual studio with my fellow tech editor and resident tool guru, Dave Rome. Hi, Dave. Hello, James. Uh, Ronan, unfortunately, is dealing with some sort of rogue sickness in the McLaughlin family, so pretty sure he's not joining us today. Uh, Ronan, hope you get better soon. On today's show, however, we are going to be talking about Boa's tough time this cyclocross season and why Wout Van Aert might be racing on a gravel bike instead of a cross bike. Uh, we're going to talk about the merits of 3D printed mountain bike grips, assuming there are any. Uh, we're going to re reveal our personal picks for our favorite handlebar tapes, too. Uh, Dave's also got a good PSA to share today for everyone running disc brakes. And I've got a nice little feel-good story that I want to share today that I ran across uh, involving a little bike found in the middle of nowhere in Colorado. First, it's, uh, it's been a little while, Dave, since you and I have chatted. How's everything going? Yeah, new year, new tools. It's going well. Feeling good about the new year and uh, lots of new tools to acquire, which is uh, probably why I'm <laughs> feeling good about it. <laughs> you, you went all of what, like three days or something without, without receiving a new tool in the mail over the holidays? Is that correct? Yeah, mainly because public holidays stopped the receivership of said <laughs> tools. But uh, as soon as the public holidays were over on the on the second of January, uh, I got I got another new tools day, and all was restored. Oh my goodness! I mean, at at some point, you are going to run out of room to put all these things, aren't you? Now, that happened long ago. I mean, they're now just <laughs> in redundant places. <laughs> I just imagine you sort of like you know, there's that old Donald Duck GIF that you see everywhere with with uh, Scrooge McDuck kind of like diving into his basement full of gold coins and money. Yep. I, I imagine that's what you do with your tools. Yep. I remember getting uh, for a birthday, like a, I think it was like the 2002 Guinness World Records book. And in that, there was a person that collected pens and they just had a photograph of him in a, a bathtub full of pens. Um, and that's definitely the way I'm headed with hex keys. So... Hopefully without the leaking ink. Uh, <laughs> Dave, what are you... Uh, we, we've gone a few weeks now without one of your threaded newsletters over the holidays. Mm. Uh, what do you have coming up in your next edition? Uh, currently working on uh, finally tackling a topic that is honestly the topic I get asked about most in, in DMs, which is uh, cartridge bearing tools. And it's, it's a category that's pretty difficult to cover because there's a lot of uh, nuance to it. Uh, so I'm breaking it into two, maybe three parts. Uh, the first part is all about uh, the fancy world of removal tools. And to be honest, I, I don't think it's a category that's that's widely applicable to the DIY market just because to do it right, there's a lot of expensive tooling. Uh, but hopefully it's it's interesting to see the specialist tools that are around for very specific tasks. And yeah, hopefully the professionals can up their game as well by reading that. So. Yeah, um, hmm. I'm enjoying writing it, so hopefully you you enjoy reading it. Interesting. Do uh, do these tools involve more than a hammer? They do, yes. Yes. Uh, and that is covered, actually, the idea okay. of uh, why I prefer tools that don't use hammers. Uh, and oh, it might, interesting. And it might okay. not be uh, solely the reason that people assume. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, Dave, your threaded tools and workshop newsletter is available to anyone. Uh, you just have to head to the website and sign up. Uh, Ronan, however, for those of you who don't know, has his own podcast called Performance Process. It's very important to call it process, not process. That podcast, however, is available only to Escape Collective members. Uh, we're still running our holiday promo where you can get a free t-shirt with an annual sign-up. So just head over to escapecollective.com slash Christmas to become a member. And then you'll get unlimited access to all of our written and podcast content, as well as an invitation to our members-only Discord channel, 
where we promise you will absolutely never, ever be mansplained by anyone. I, I think that's a promise I can actually fulfill. Um, mm. And uh, again, as a reminder, that's uh, escapecollective.com slash Christmas to sign up for that deal. Uh, and yeah, make sure you head over there before that promo ends. And the best bit is, is you can choose your t-shirt. Oh, I knew you were going to say something about that. Yeah. You're not even, you're not even forced into just having a, a, a black medium shirt that says escape. There's a whole range of shirts. And, and James currently on camera is showing me his, uh, his park tool three-way hex key. And, and for people that don't like those tools, there's even a shirt that says uh, worst hex ever in association with the, the three-way, uh, which uh, I will be proudly wearing. I'm not sure that I share your opinion that it's the worst one, but there are definitely other ones that are better. Anyway, let's get on with this show here. First up, uh, we're a few months into cyclocross season and Escape Collective contributor Cosmo Catalano has noticed what seems to be a kind of an unusually high failure rate for BOA shoe dials. Uh, He's noted, noted that on at least four separate riders and at four different tracks over the last few weeks. So BOA shoe closures are obviously nothing new. I mean, they've been, on, they've been in, uh, in cycling shoes for actually more than 20 years now. Uh, and I think, Dave, certainly you and I have used an awful lot of BOA-equipped shoes over the years with no issues for pretty much the entire time that they've been around. Do we have any idea what's going on here? I wouldn't say no issues over my history. I think I've probably experienced one or two failures, which were warranted for free because BOA has what would probably be the most exceptional product warranty in the world yeah you go on to their their warranty portal and uh fill in a few details associated with the shoe you need and why it failed and they fedex you a new pair of boas which is pretty remarkable i don't know what's going on here it seems like there's more argy bargy riding in in cyclocross maybe they're they're bumping into each other or, or hitting these bows against barriers or or crashing on them because the photos I've seen all sort of seem like they're ripping the boa off the shoe rather than the boa itself is failing. Like, it's not like a, a wire is breaking or, or the spool is falling apart. It's just the whole spool is detaching from the shoe in the designs that allow that to happen. Uh, is that what you're seeing, James, or am I, am I missing the story here? No, that seems to be what I'm seeing as well. Um, yeah, it is worth noting, uh, just to provide a little bit of background, that Boa dials haven't, uh, yeah, so Boa does offer an incredibly good warranty, but one of the reasons why they're able to offer that warranty is because they switched however many years ago to this sort of snap-in kind of interface that they have, uh, where you have this sort of plastic base that is permanently stitched or bonded onto the shoe, and then you have uh, the mechanism, mechanism itself that snaps in. And yeah, from what we can tell, though that mechanism is basically popping out of the shoe. Uh, it doesn't seem to be happening like spontaneously um, because again, if it was a spontaneous thing, I think we would see that much, much more frequently. But yeah, it does seem like they are popping out more, more regularly than, than we've noted in the past, uh, which kind of, I don't know. It's, like you said, Dave, I don't know if it's kind of like the nature of cross racing is changing a little bit and people are kind of smashing into each other a little bit more. Yeah, um, It is a little unusual because typically they have been quite reliable mm-hmm. actually uh I'd, I'd say certainly if for no other reason than the fact that if they weren't very reliable then we probably wouldn't see them as often as we do i mean they're 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 basically like the default closure mechanism in any sort of like mid to higher range uh, higher end shoe i certainly don't think it's enough of a failure rate to prompt companies to kind of look away from boa yeah but for cross specifically it does make me wonder if there's another option that might work better yeah like a Rewinding the clock a bit and going more into a, a like a bolted on boa version rather than just the snap in version might be 
might be the answer here. But yeah, I looked at mountain bike, cross-country mountain bike here, and most of the field are on some kind of boa-equipped shoe. Uh, and this isn't a failure that you see too often in the mountain bike world. Uh, so yeah, I think it is really just probably style of racing and, and the limit that the these these races are racing on, that they really are coming into physical contact with each other. They're hitting barriers. They're you know, they're, they're jumping off the bike and, and running through whatever is required and, you know, potentially rubbing the boa on, on things that most uh, more human level of, uh, of athletes probably wouldn't be doing uh, with their bodies. So I think it's, it's a, a fringe case that we're just seeing at the top end. And yeah, obviously in the road, when we, when we see boa failures, it's because a, a rider slid out. Uh, you know, Matthew Vanderpoel at the World Champs comes to mind. I don't necessarily think it's a solely a product related issue here. I think it's a a fringe use case. It's been a particularly muddy season this mm. year, it seems like as well. Um, and I think it's also worth noting that even in the best of conditions, essentially what you have here is like the prime, prime case of underbiking. It's like, you know, the original underbiking or you're, you're yeah. riding on these courses that um, you know, most people would want to use a, a hardtail mountain bike or something similar uh, on, but instead you're running on, on essentially road bikes with 33 millimeter tires. So, I mean, it's, it, it's a recipe for disaster in a lot of ways and certainly a big test for, for equipment. I guess this is something that we're just going to kind of continue to keep an eye on because we do still have yeah. uh, and there's still plenty of, of cross season left in the season here. So yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. I know the, the, the racers are not, well, the racers who have been affected by it anyway, certainly are not happy that this is happening because, you know, when you have a shoe failure, that's a pretty big deal. But yeah, I mean, this is, this is one of those things where I kind of wish we could be in the pits right now and find out, you know, talk to the mechanics and find out what they're, find out what they're doing, find out what's going on here. James, have you, have you seen any trends as to what shoe brand this is happening with? Like, is it happening with just one brand of shoe or is it across uh, various brands of Boa equipped shoes? Not that I can tell right now. Yeah. Um, and even then, I'm not sure it would matter because Boa is essentially like an OE component supplier to mm-hmm. all these shoe brands that use them. So the, those plastic bases and the Boa reels themselves and everything, those are supplied by Boa to the companies. So unless it's a shoe design that puts the base under an unusual amount of bending stress or yeah, something, I don't see why the shoe itself yeah. would contribute to this. Um, or, yeah. you know, maybe it like puts the, puts the, the boa dial in a, in a more vulnerable position or something. Yeah. But aside from that, I mean, one thing it does make me wonder is if we might start seeing, obviously we have cross-specific bikes. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, might we see cross-specific shoes? I feel like we've seen that in the past. Uh, kind I, of. I, I mean, they're I basically guess. cross-country mountain bike shoes, but I'm, but I'm wondering more in the sense of like minimizing this sort of thing. Like if mm. it becomes something that, that is more prevalent and brands and riders still want to use BOA closures, like this makes me wonder about, you know, there are some shoe companies that put the BOA reel like right on the top of the instep, which yeah. I mean, that has or separate on the issues, heel. but yeah, other companies have put it on the heel, which seems mm-hmm. like that would maybe be a little bit more protected potentially, but yeah, hard, hard to say. But again, this is something we'll keep an eye on. It's just something interesting that we've noticed. Mm. Um, if only though, like a, but, uh, a simpler speaking, means of shoe retention with like, you know, I don't know, something that perhaps used a hook and loop style design or... Oh, strange. Or with, or like, or with or strings. Like, you know, something, where, something where you're tied a knot. Yeah. Anyway, let's move on. Huh. Well, maybe, maybe in the future. I mean, we, you know, never, never rule out any technological advancements, Dave. Um, but speaking of cyclocross, we've also noticed that uh, Yumbo, I guess, I guess it's Yumbo Lisa bike now these days, 
but Yumbo Lisa bike rider uh, Wout Van Aert has been racing occasionally, not on his usual Cervelo R5X cro- R5CX, excuse me, a cross bike, but rather a Cervelo Aspro gravel bike. So we've reached out to Cervelo to ask about this, and they were going to reach out to the team, but unfortunately, we have not quite heard back about it yet. But we do have some theories, or at least some thoughts, on why this may be. So one thing that I'm wondering about is, as I mentioned just a minute ago, this has been an unusually muddy cross season, even for a European cross. And it's a very small difference, but that Aspro does have a smidgen more mud clearance than the R5CX, since that R5CX is only designed to run with a 33 mil tire. That Aspro, however, is designed to run a bigger tire and still maintain a lot of clearance. Again, the, the real world difference isn't that much, but in those sorts of conditions, I'd imagine any little bit might be yep. helpful. That would be my um, guess. That would be my guess too. But again, like because the difference is so relatively minimal, it also makes me wonder if the geometry is playing a role here because uh, the steering geometries between those two bikes are pretty similar, like very similar trail figures. Uh, and assuming Van Aert has sized down on the Aspro to maintain a similar stack and reach, which I'm guessing he probably has, bottom bracket on the Aspro is like 13 mils lower than the R5CX, and the chainstays are also five mils shorter. So maybe there's a handling component to this as well, which the bottom bracket thing kind of throws me a little bit though, because the reason why so many European style cross bikes have such high bottom brackets is specifically to deal with all the mud. Given that this has been a particularly muddy cross season, you would think that the lower bottom bracket maybe wouldn't be a desirable thing. But there's got to be a reason why he's re- why he's racing that bike instead of the R5CX. You say steering geometry is the same, but is like the head angle and all that the same? Isn't the Sparrow like a longer front center bike for a similar size? Uh, okay. um, but in a, but in a similar size, it also has a has quite a quite a taller stack, mm. uh, which again which leads me to believe that he probably has sized down to maintain a similar fit. Yeah, because because um, my, my my thinking when you start talking geometry is that uh, if you think about the level of technical ability at pro cyclocross now, like you've got. <laughs> Tom Pidcock, you know, Olympic mountain bike champ. You've got Matthew Vanderpoel, uh, mountain bike slayer, but, you know, allergic to three-foot drops. But, like, you know, these guys are at a pinnacle of technical ability, and Wout Van Aert doesn't come from mountain bike. He doesn't race mountain bike, and I wonder whether he's looking for something to fill that perhaps gap in, in confidence to descend on that limit. Um, I mean, he comes from cyclocross, so I'm not trying to take away his... Uh, his technical abilities here he clearly does stay with them on the descents but i'm wondering if the level's just that high that he was just looking for some kind of advantage that just gives him that that next level in confidence but i'm speculating wildly yeah. here so i'm gonna stop <laughs> i mean that that was definitely my initial first thought that that aspero is kind of longer front center and uh, like a little bit you know more rowdiness friendly handling might might be something that he's looking for given those conditions I really do wonder if he has sized down, but regarding the, the handling thing and like the skill level and that sort of thing, I actually think that there's more skill to be gained and learned in racing cross at that level than there is in mountain bike, just in the sense that, again, you are so, so severely underbiked yeah. that you have no, like you can't lean on the equipment nearly as much as you can in mountain biking to, yeah. to kind of get you through some of these tougher sections. And granted, cross courses are not as rocky and not quite as extreme as as modern cross-country courses but you are sliding around an awful lot yeah. in, in cross bikes and i think it's no i think it's no coincidence that vanderpoel i guess in particular has done so well in mountain biking yes aside from the drop in tokyo that he supposedly didn't know was going to be there 
But uh, mm. aside from that, his handling's pretty solid. Yeah, and Pidcock as well. Like Pidcock, I mean, rode a lot of mountain bikes as a junior, but it was it certainly wasn't his discipline of choice. And he's you know an exceptional exceptional bike handler. And uh, Puck Vitters and the in the women's, you know, who dominated the 2023 mountain bike World Cup season. Yeah, cyclocross racer. So yeah, I think I think you're right, James. I think the the skills earned through cyclocross are, are some of the best. Again, we haven't heard official word from Cervello or the team. So again, this is all just speculation. But yeah, something interesting again to note in the World Cup cross circuit right now. All right, moving away from cyclocross, uh, this next bit of news might not seem all that consequential, and on the surface, it, it's not. Uh, Lizard Skins, uh, they've announced a new set of mountain bike grips called the 3D GRP, uh, which as the name suggests is 3D printed using the same, uh, they're actually using the same OE manufacturer that Physique and Specialized use for their flagship saddles. Carbon. I really, really like uh, carbon. Yes. Uh, is it, it is carbon with a C, right? Yes. I think it's pretty sure it's carbon with a C. I really like, uh, most of the 3D printed Physique and Specialized saddles that I've tried, uh, in particular how incredibly cushy they are. I mean, they just have a lot more padding thickness than, uh, what you typically find in a conventionally padded saddle. But I find it really interesting that Lizardskins makes a big deal about how these grips are made, but they don't say anything at all about what supposedly makes them any better than conventional ones, particularly given that these 3D printed ones are like, you know, two to three times the price of kind of more conventionally made grips. Uh, so the only thing, phys- but uh, the only still thing a tenth really of says- the price of an S work saddle. Yes, yes, okay. <laughs> um, but the only thing Lizard Skin says it's, it's super vague and like markety speak sort of thing. It says, "quote these, these will take your ride to the next level." Unquote. What the mm. heck does that mean? So I mean, I'm, I'm all sold. for next generation manufacturing methods. Yeah, <laughs> I'm all for next generation manufacturing methods when they're warranted. But does this kind of feel like 3D printing just for the sake of being 3D printed? Yes, it does. I, I don't know. I think I look at it and yeah, you've got, you know, using the saddles as an example, it gives you zonal comfort, I guess. So some sections are, are more densely padded than others and some, you know, where you, where you don't need dense padding, it's more, more squishy, I guess. And uh, these grips appear to be working on that theory. Uh, in the past, you could do the same with, uh, with rubber grips where, or, or silicon, where you just basically add material or change the change the pattern um on the on the grip you know you'd use ribs or sipes or whatever it is to to change the the density of that of that rubber but uh yeah i mean this is just appears to be going a different different way on it uh i'm curious to try it i'm also very skeptical as to whether that's gonna be a benefit yeah i mean like i said i've having ridden several of those saddles from both of those companies um i'm intrigued but i'm not like Fifty dollars for a pair of grips, intrigued. Fair. We'll see. Maybe I'll uh, try get my hands on some. And ah, uh, oh, oh, yeah, kicking off, kicking off the year with the puns already. I, what what I think is a little frustrating for, for me is just knowing how much potential there is in a three D printed mountain bike grip like that. Mm. Um, but I suppose it's the sort of thing that maybe just isn't conducive to mass manufacturing because. One of the things I do really like about those 3D printed saddles is, you know, they each of those companies makes them in different shapes and um, sizes, and they kind of have different characteristics and whatnot. And lizard skins, maybe they're sort of just perhaps just testing the waters to see what the reception is like on these. There is obviously all sorts of potential for different shapes and different padding types, and as you mentioned, like zonal padding densities and that sort of thing. But none of that stuff is mentioned here. Yeah, which kind of leads me to believe. It, it makes me think that Lizard Skins approached Carbon and said, hey, can you make us a mountain bike grip? And, and Carbon was like, okay. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. 
Yep, I agree. It it almost feels as much as like a promotional tool to just get lizard skins back in the in discussion as it does as a you know more than it does as a product they're actually trying to sell. Maybe. And yeah, I mean the manufacturing method just you know it's not like they have to commit to a million of these. So. Right. Technically speaking, you really only have to make one. <laughs> so, like not even one pair, just one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there's more than one pair around, but uh, who knows? Okay, fine. Maybe like three or four. Yeah. Yeah. Five. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's wrap up the news just for this little bit. Let's take a quick break and then we'll come back in a minute. All right, Dave. Well, we are not going to do an On Your Mind segment this week since we are just back at our desks and our minds aren't fully operational yet, mm. or at least mine isn't. Uh, we did want to get things warmed up with another edition of Pick One, however, where we pick a product category and then reveal our personal favorites. Dave, you have picked handlebar tape this week. I have. What's your favorite? What do you look for? Uh, yeah, I think handlebar tape, extremely personal. It's kind of like suggesting a saddle. And I think for me, it's... There's a lot of similarities in the market, I think is worth pointing out. There's only so many manufacturers of handlebar tape, and, and those manufacturers have their, I guess, consistent methods of materials they use and uh, backing tapes and all that. And I think for me, I, I tend to prefer tapes manufactured by Velo, who are uh, world's largest saddle manufacturer. And uh, once I start uh, mentioning these features you'll probably be like hey my favorite bar tape might be made by velo uh so yeah i i really like tapes with a a gel backing to them which means they're kind of reusable and that they uh they don't degrade in the box if you leave them there for more than a year and you find the adhesives then falling apart i find that gel also sometimes helps with comfort but it certainly helps with the rewrapping ability of a tape Uh, i like tapes that also have a little bit of stretch to them so when you're wrapping them, you can actually get a nice, tight, even fit that holds onto the bar. Uh, bar tapes that ask you not to stretch them or that when you pull on them have no obvious stretch to them are, are not great from a mechanic's point of view. And they tend to, in my experience, either unravel themselves or, or just don't last as well, as long. So uh, those are some of the features. I also like, I've, I've started to prefer tapes in recent years with a, a rubber texture. Uh, and previously that used to only be lizard skins once upon a time, but, uh, then Supercaz came out. Uh, but yeah, I still prefer those from Velo. So sorry, brands that I'm going to mention these here, but Envy's a very good example. I, I, um, I was just going to ask what, what brands do you have uh, in mind that are, that you know are made I, by Velo? I believe Silka based on a few characteristics, but probably my go-to as far as one I've had the best success with and the one that I find most enjoyable to wrap with. Uh, Zip Service Course CX. Ooh, hey, I've got that on my list too. Yeah. So uh, that one's just a uh, old faithful, and yeah, uh, I guess let's let's hear from yours first, and then I'll get into pet peeves as to why I actually like that that zip tape because it doesn't have any of my pet peeves. Uh, well, I will say I definitely like the rubberized texture just for the for the grip aspect because I do often prefer to ride without gloves. And a lot of tapes that I see out there that just have kind of like a raw foam on them are, are quite slippery. Mm-hmm. I will say I do often like tapes that have that gel backing for that reason that you mentioned. However, it's not a deal breaker for me. Like yeah. I don't mind if it has an adhesive backing on it as yeah. long as the adhesive is such that it doesn't like leave little bits of itself all over the bar when you, when you go to unwrap it. But at least for me anyway, like I, I have you know, somewhat bigger hands and I generally prefer... 
uh, at least for bars that aren't like super, super aggressively arrow shaped. Uh, I generally prefer tapes that are a little, little bit thicker. So a couple of my favorites are like the Silka Cushino and, then, and they make it in like a 3.75 mil thickness, which is quite thick. Uh, and then Ergon has uh, uh, a gravel version that's three and a half mil thick. Oh, yeah. Also, again, certainly on the thicker end. Sorry, Ergon, um, I forgot about you. I actually like I like that part tape as well. Again, <laughs> uh, uh, I believe a Velo manufactured product. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ergon one, I have found to one issue I think I have with both of those. If if I'm remembering correctly, the Ergon does run at adhesive backing. It and does. I think the Silka one does as well. Yeah, Silka does. And if yeah. I remember correctly, if I remember correctly, the surfaces of those are are both so tacky that if you try to reuse the tape, it's nearly impossible. Um, so that's definitely a bummer. But uh, they're both also pretty stretchy, easy to wrap. Um, it's funny, like you, you mentioned tapes that are not stretchy and are not easy to wrap. And the first thing that came to mind was like some of the old physique, kind of like fabric-y yeah. sort of bar tape. Uh, it was almost completely devoid of stretch and actually almost completely devoid of padding too. Mm-hmm. Um, looked neat, had a nice texture to it, but total nightmare to wrap, I, at least in my I opinion I stopped anyway. using that tape after a 110 kilometer mountain bike race I decided to do on a cyclocross bike. Oh, actual cycle cross bike without gloves did you come out of that with permanent nerve damage or anything i actually honestly believe i did my hands were purple for almost three weeks um oh like actual bruised <laughs> I, I remember stopping at about the 70 kilometer mark looking at my hands and just crying um <laughs> did, and, why did you think that was a good idea and but yeah like i i could not use that bar tape again afterwards it's just i i mean that bike sat on use for months for months and months and months afterwards. <laughs> uh, I don't know why I thought it was a good idea. It was definitely not a good idea. But uh, yeah, the lack of gloves was, was just another level of stupidity. But anyway. Oh my. Yeah. Huh. Um, one bar tape that I stumbled upon that's pretty interesting. I'm not going to say it's my favorite, but it's definitely really intriguing. Uh, have you heard of that brand Camp and Go Slow? Yes. They do so some cool they stuff. have this tape. They have this tape called uh, Rattler Tape. It's mm-hmm. designed... Like the, the pattern is sort of like a sort of like a snake. The the surface is interesting because it's like a woven nylon mm. instead of like a rubberized texture. It's not especially grippy. Uh, it's it's actually almost a little bit slippery, like to the point where I really would almost recommend like pretty strongly against riding without gloves. But the surface is so durable that it it almost kind of seems like it'll last forever. Yeah, there's some cotton I mean, tapes and nylon tapes around that are yeah will outlast uh, a modern group set. That's for sure. Yeah, for me, I still I still prefer a tape that has more grip because from the mountain bike world, what you learned is the more grip a tape has, the the less you have to hold on, and then the less fatigue you get. So, you know, if you're not having to death grip a handlebar, um, yeah, the, your muscles are more relaxed and you can absorb the impacts better. The thing that I I, I know that there are a lot of people out there who prefer much thinner bar tapes out there. Yep. But the thing that I am always a little bit perplexed by is the fact that you know, the contact points of your bike, they ultimately, they have very narrow kind of specific usages. Um, and for, for handlebar tape, I mean, it's where you put your hands, it's where you have control, it's where you supposedly have comfort for your hand or cushioning for your hands, that sort of thing. I can't help but wonder if the people who prefer very thin bar tapes are also the ones who are still running narrow tires at very high pressures. Perhaps, yes. Yeah, I think from my point of view, like I, you can still have the rubbered texture and the grip without having to go to a thick, densely padded bar tape. You know, a lot of the, the bar tapes we've mentioned are available in a, a thin version. Like Ergon, for example, do, you know, they do a road version, they do a gravel version, and all that refers to is the, the thickness of the bar tape. Of um, the foam, yep. And they all have the same texture and they all have the same 
general construction. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think there are options out there um, without having to go to a slippery bar tape. But yeah, I think yeah, the like the old school, you know, the physique's a perfect example that basically you could just feel the the hard bar through it. I think that is poor choice. Uh, I mean, each to their own. It's almost sort of like the modern incarnation of Bonotto cello tape, but with grip. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and fewer colors. Yep. Uh, and it's the same reason I'm I'm struggling to remember the brand, but there's a brand that makes uh, Bauman Baum something like that. Uh, but yeah, they make a like a recycled cotton tape. Um, but again, like that that stuff is in theory is going to last a lifetime, and from an eco point of view, perhaps amazing. But it's just for me, like yeah, just complete lack of padding is 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 a problem. So uh, I'm remembering it's, it's, other it's also- Velo made tapes I like though uh, Berg. A lot of people think they're made in Australia. They're not. I'm pretty sure they're manufactured by Velo. But it's, uh, yeah, they, they have a probably the most impressive range of different black and white and black on black patterns. Uh, you know, it's 40 plus different design options. Uh, that tape is, again, ticks the boxes for me in terms of having the right balance of padding and grip and wrappability uh a little bit pricey but yeah another good one and uh p and w uh which i guess they're known for like dropper seat posts and stuff they also have a the coast bar tape which i I quite like i've got that on my uh the gravel bike above my head at the moment speaking of cost can we talk a little bit about how much bar tape seems to seems to cost these days i'm gonna sound like an old curmudgeon like you know homer simpson's dad yelling at cloud sort of thing is it just me or does it seem like handlebar tape is awfully expensive now yep it's not you. It's not just you. Uh, I think it's because the tape we're talking about is probably a lot more expensive to make than the old cork tape that we're uh, that used to just come off a you know a press and go into a roll. I think this stuff is you know it's multi multi material, multi density stuff. And uh, from what I have been told is that the actual like brand or manufacturer cost on this stuff is kind of comparable to what you and I might have been used to paying for old cork tape at like, like retail interesting so like the actual oh. manufacturer cost is similar to a retail cost of cork tape yeah intriguing uh, which okay. is true well, sure explains the pricing i guess well i guess uh if you are going to pay an awful lot for handlebar tape then you know at least make sure it's something that you like and something that is hopefully going to last a long time so yeah. speaking of that lizard skins dsp stuff that you were that you referenced earlier mm-hmm. I actually used to really like that tape, yeah, but it didn't same. seem to last very long. Yeah. So yeah, but hopefully Lizardskins has fixed that in more recent years. Yeah, the the issue is like, yeah, it sort of delaminates, right? Like the rubber coating comes off of it. I believe a lot of that durability issues are related to uh, the way you wrap it, which is they specifically they say, to, say- They say to not stretch it too much. They say not stretch it, but you kind of can't help yourself, you know? <laughs> like it's, and you, you kind of do stretch it. And I think that kind of, breaks the tape apart a little bit and allows it to delaminate uh but yeah that goes back to the issue of like tape you can't stretch is harder to wrap and just and more annoying from a mechanics point of view so yeah it, it sort of comes back to that that same problem um another pet peeve of mine though can i i'm gonna get this uh this off my chest which is if any brands are listening uh can you please start providing more length to your bar tape oh yes definitely uh, too many brands. I'm not even going to name anyone because it's almost everyone. Uh, don't provide adequate length for the way bars have changed in shape or grown in width. So, 
This especially applies to gravel bikes with wide flares. It especially applies to modern road bikes with deep aero tube shapes. Yeah, too often I'm having, you know, you're having to be ultra careful and and sort of perhaps skimp on the the overlap of the bar tape in in order to achieve the uh, appropriate uh, distance into the bar to wrap a bar. Um, Some older school tapes are really bad in this regard. Some newer tapes are actually just fine or pretty decent. Uh, But yeah, I think as a rule, everyone should just add more length. It's kind of tough though, because on the one hand, you have this trend where handlebars are getting much narrower, at least on the road. And then you have these arrow shaped bars where a lot of people just don't tape, don't tape the tops at all. Uh, in which case you almost have twice as much tape as you really need. But then you have other situations where, like you said, you've got gravel bars that are extra wide with lots of flare and so on and so forth. And then if you take one of those and start at the end, like you normally would and wrap kind of close to the stem as you normally would. Mm-hmm. I mean, you need almost twice as much bar tape as you typically would. Yep. Uh, random product idea then. Why doesn't someone do a, a road arrow bar tape, which is like, it just gives you half the roll length and doesn't charge you nearly as much. Well, no, David, it's faster than you can charge twice as much. Oh yeah. You're getting your marketing Sorry. all wrong here. Sorry. Yes. A much more expensive with less. Bar tape. <laughs> exactly. It's lighter. It is lighter. Yeah. Especially in the box. The box is lighter. Therefore the product's mm-hmm. lighter. Uh, Done. Or, no, you can, you can put it in an extra premium box. You can have your unboxing uh, YouTube video to share it with people. Yeah. Anyway, that's... Uh, we've, gone off the, we've, we've gone off the rails here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> James, what's your... I'm going to stick on this one, this topic for a little longer. What's your preference for bar plugs? Oh, bar plugs. Interesting. Uh, on a road bar. On a road bar. Let's, let's ignore mountain bikes for now. You know, I still am a fan of kind of mountain bike style, just sort of like press them in kind of plugs i know that a lot of people like ones with you know pretty aluminum ends and you know expanding wedges and whatnot uh and those are fine but yeah i i still like just the good old-fashioned just sort of like pound them in sort of bar plug because they they work they're light they're cheap they don't seem to come out when they're when they're properly sized and if you were to lay down your bike they don't get like completely scratched up and destroyed like an aluminum one would Mm. yeah fair I mean, they are the lighter option. They're the cheaper option. Um, I, I've i started to, despite the weight penalty, prefer the aluminium versions just because, uh, uh, I mean, they, in theory, you only need one set and you take it from bike to bike um, or from tape to tape. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I find them, because of the variance in wall thickness between handlebars, the, the push-in plugs aren't as reliable as they, they once were. Uh, and... I feel like that's where the expanding plugs come in and, and sort of can save the day. And yeah, if you, you bump them, they don't dislodge themselves. I, I will say that one thing that I have just recently started playing with, or I guess just recently received that I'm going to start playing with. Hold on just a second here. I'm going to show this to you on camera here. Mm. Yes. Show and tell. This the perfect re- format for this a podcast. Perfect format for a podcast. Uh, I'm still playing with, uh, with rear view mirrors on the road. And uh, the folks at Bertha, this little company in France, I just got a little bar and mirror from them. So uh, if this thing works out, I may end up just only requiring one bar plug. Hmm. Did you ever see yourself testing mirrors? No. Sorry, that was a bad pun. Can't say that it did. That actually looks quite clean. Sure fart. Looks uh, like a uh, smart design. It, it better be. It was quite expensive, even at the discount that they gave me since I'm doing this for a review. Oh, okay. Anyway... Moving on, as I said earlier, we're not going to do an on your mind segment here, but Dave, uh, I'd say, you know, it's safe to say that most of the enthusiast cycling market now has made the switch to disc brakes. 
but not everyone might be fully up to speed as far as the different maintenance that might be involved. There's a few things with disc brakes that I think uh, there's knowledge gaps on. Uh, disc brake bedding is one. Again, I'm, this is going to be a running joke, but I am still working on that same article I was working on six months ago. Uh, I think not pushing your dirty pistons back into the caliper anytime you want to change your pads is, is another all too common mistake. Uh, and then the other one, which is related to this PSA, is uh, far too often people wear out their brake pads, replace their brake pads, and completely ignore the rotor, which is the other half of your braking surface, which is also a wear item. Uh, and if you look at the the little writing on your rotor, that'll it'll mention a, a minimum thickness. Uh, and that minimum thickness, uh, or should I say you, the wearing toward that minimum thickness happens a lot quicker than most people would assume. Uh, I would say in most cases on a road disc brake, when you're running the resin brake pads that say SRAM and Shimano come with, uh, you're probably looking at three sets of brake pads before you hit the minimum thickness on a rotor these days. Uh, so yeah, that's for, sh- for Shimano off the top of my head, it's 1.5 millimeters is the minimum thickness. The starting thickness is 1.8. So you're not talking about a lot of wear here. Uh, so yeah, that's the PSA is measure your disc rotors because ignoring them uh, affects brake function. Uh, it it sort of stresses the caliper by having to push the pistons out too far when you when you wear your pads. Uh, it draws you know too much f- fluid from the master cylinder. Uh, and in severe cases, once they're really worn, the the rotor brake track just completely separates and death ensures. So uh, yeah, it's it's a good one to measure. As far as measuring them, uh, I always recommend trying to measure from the center of the brake track uh, because depending on how your caliper is set up, you might end up uh, with like a, a top lip on the rotor, which means if you just put uh, a tool over the straight over the top of the rotor, it'll probably give you a false reading. So ideally you want a, a thickness gauge or a micrometer or, or something that lets you measure from the, the center of the rotor. Uh, for those that don't want to spend a lot of money on a, a thickness gauge or similar, uh, there is a dental tooth measuring tool uh, called an I Wanson Spring Action Gauge, uh, which I'm looking at it in Australia is eight dollars with free delivery from eBay, uh, and that will actually get you a good measurement. Also good for measuring old rim uh, thickness as well gets behind the hood uh, and teeth i guess and teeth yeah i mean if you want to get a crown made you can bring your own gauge to the dentist and they'll be like get that eight dollar gauge out of here i'm not yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh dave you have any recommendations on anything that people can do to extend the life of their rotors uh extending the life i mean brake bedding is is a, a critical step to ensuring that you get the best performance from your rotors and therefore best life uh Otherwise, yeah, not riding your bike is probably the other option to really extend the life of your rotors. Braking less, go faster, simple. Yeah, uh, James, I don't know. Do you have any tips in that in that regard? Uh, I don't. I mean, aside from just sort of like you know rotating your riding between multiple bikes, because if you have two bikes, your rotors last twice as long, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the general advice of like if you ride in bad conditions, wet, muck, grit, soggy conditions, expect to replace bike parts more often. Uh, I think that's probably the main takeaway is it's those wet conditions that'll rapidly wear down your brake pads. And, and if your brake pads are wearing down, so are your rotors. So yeah, just if you are wanting to ride in, in wet and, you know, whether it's necessity through commuting or, uh, just because you ride year round, uh, yeah, just budget for it because 
you are causing increased damage to your bike. All right. Well, thankfully, rotors are a lot cheaper to replace than rims. So and a, easier plus there. But yeah, and, and easier indeed. Indeed. Mm. Uh, all right. Well, cool. That, that's a very useful PSA, Dave. So I've got a couple of little bits of news to share at the very end. But before I do that, uh, would you mind if I shared a little feel good story that I stumbled upon the other day to kick off the new year? So this was posted on a Colorado-based Facebook page. I think it's like Colorado Bicycle Sales or something like that. Uh, and the poster's name is Andrew Reed. Andrew was driving on Interstate 76 in rural northeastern Colorado when uh, he apparently stumbled upon a, a Thule hitch rack that was sitting on the side of the highway with a bike still on it, uh, a giant dual-suspension mountain bike to be specific. Mm. Uh, he said that the, the rack was a little beat up, as you'd expect, seeing as how it probably fell off the car going like, 120, 130k an hour or something. He said the bike was pretty much just fine though. So uh, unfortunately, there was no ID attached to it as you would expect. That said, he apparently took it upon himself to do a little detective work to find the owner. Uh, he tried to drop it off at a local police station, but uh, he said that they kind of left him waiting for like 45 minutes and then he just got tired of waiting and tossed it in the back of his car and kept going. Fair enough. Um, but as it turns out, it's a good thing he did not leave it there because he was headed to Western Colorado. Uh, and then he eventually got a hold of his home bike shop. He's from Wisconsin. Uh, is, uh, is, I think his home bike shop, he think said it was in like Janesville, Wisconsin, something like that. Uh, but anyway, that, that, uh, that shop was a giant dealer. They helped him with giant trace down the serial number oh, as wow. far as where that bike was originally sold, which then led him to Chili Pepper Bike Shop in Moab, Utah, Whoa. who then tracked down the owner of the bike. And as it turns out, this is a crazy story of serendipity. So as it turns out, the owner of the bike was driving an RV across Colorado and towing a Jeep behind it. Uh, and then the rack and the bike were attached to that Jeep. Oh, that explains it. And okay. the, driver ha- the driver had no idea the rack yeah, had fallen off. No clue. That, e- that explains how uh, the rack falls off and you don't notice. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So by the time Andrew got in touch with him, turns out the owner of the bike was literally five minutes away from what? him in Grand Junction, Colorado. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, I mean, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Colorado geography... Grand Junction is a good five hours west of where Andrew found this bike. So uh, needless to say, the owner was pretty damn stoked. Uh, and kudos to you, Andrew, for doing the right thing instead of just claiming the thing for yourself because yeah. you definitely made that guy's yeah, day. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's an impressive amount of work to, to get someone their bike back. And that's uh, many, many good karma points earned for that. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. How far do you think the person drew, uh, drove before they uh, realized the, the bike and rack were just not on their Jeep? Uh, well, I will say I am not familiar with the, <laughs> with the gas tank volumes of a decent-sized RV, so, but I'm going to guess that they went quite a ways before they realized where the thing was. And when they stopped to refuel, I mean, unless they specifically went to the back of the back of the Jeep that they were towing to see if their bike was still there, like they may not have even noticed then. So they might not have noticed until they got to Grand Junction. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you ever had a bike fall off so, a rack? No, I've never had a bike fall off a rack. I have. But that, that said, I'm going to now. So yeah, I have. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's, that's on, on un- the way unpleasant. to, a, I was a teenager on the way to, a, yeah, on the way to a riding holiday. It was one of those old two-way racks with the the two prong bars with the rubber straps that you attach to the top tube and uh yeah something went wrong and looked back and oh i think we we were hooted at and we looked back and my bike was missing and uh thankfully oh. they were locked so all that happened was uh the pedal was sparking against the ground the rest of the bike was absolutely perfect but uh but yeah uh my my first fancy component at the time which i i spent all my pocket money on a set of dmr v8s were uh ground down to the axle 
still usable, actually. Ooh. I think I still have them. Except now they're like V4s. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's... Uh, anyway, there you go. It's, just, it's a very scary moment when you, uh, when you look back and you don't see something. Eek. Yeah. Yikes. Well, it sounds like you got off lucky with that one. Mm. But yes, I guess, uh, we can, I guess we can feel free to toss in another PSA here for anyone who is running a hitch rack. Head out to your car right now and make sure the thing is tight. Right, make, sure make sure your hitch yep. pin is t- properly tightened and locked and whatever. Very unpleasant if that thing falls off your car. Mm-hmm. Maybe more so for the people behind yeah. you. Um, all right, last few little bits of news before we wrap up for the week. Uh, if you're a fan of power meters on the mountain bike, Rotor has got a new option for you. Uh, they got a version of the Inspider that is designed to fit on sh- like current generation Shimano mountain bike cranks. Yep. Uh, it's a spider-based setup, dual-sided. Uh, it's only 99 grams, pretty good. Uh, uses a 4 by 100 mil BCD uh, and fits overall round chain rings between 30 and 36 T. Kind of expensive. Yeah. Kind of 750 US without rings. But it does look like a pretty good product. Rotor has a pretty good reputation when it comes to their power meters. And if you're looking for a dual-sided option for mountain biking and you don't want to run uh, power meter pedals yeah. uh, for whatever reason, that is... Or a uh, These rotors look like yeah. a... Yeah, or this rotor looks like a good way to yeah. go. Um, I, I'm on the ro- intrigued by this product, and I really like everything about it except for the proprietary size chainring that they're running. Uh, so at the moment, Rotor are the only ones that make chainrings for this. Uh, hopefully, with time, you know, if the product's a success, uh, you'd imagine the likes of Wolftooth would join them. But for now, you've got one brand of chainring to choose. I mean, thankfully, in my experience, Rotor chainrings have been pretty good. Yeah. Um, so there's that, uh, and at least they make them in a lot of sizes. So. Uh, at least they're not just limiting you to like one or two or something sure. like that. Um, on the road, uh, we've noticed Cask has a new Aero Road helmet that's being worn by the Ineos Grenadiers. We don't really have much information on this thing at all, aside from the fact that uh, the the top of the helmet actually partially covers the top of your top of the rider's ears, uh, presumably for Aero purposes. So again, we don't have any official info on this. We haven't gotten anything from Cask yet. Uh, so we'll find out. I think sooner than later, given that the road racing season is just about to kick off in a couple weeks, actually. That one looks intriguing. I so want them to call this the Dumbo. Dumbo being the <laughs> character, the elephant that used to fly with its ears. Um, there, there might be a licensing issue with that. Uh, yeah, you're probably right. Anyway. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, speaking of road, uh, I know we have talked about this in the past, but... Bora Hansgrohe has now officially confirmed yep. that it is on SRAM components and Hammerhead computers for the 2024 season. And finally, uh, for those of you who are fans of Chris King hubs and are looking to get yourself the new Shimano GRX 12-speed gravel group set, Chris King has just added a micro-spline driver body Ooh. option to its R45 disc brake hubs. Oh, cool. More options are good, I think. Yeah. All right. Dave, well, if you don't have anything else to add, I think that'll do it for our first Geek Warning episode of 2024. A couple of very, very quick announcements before we sign off. Uh, as I mentioned earlier on the show, don't forget to sign up for Dave's Tools and Workshop uh, newsletter called Threaded, and also for Ronan's new members-only podcast called Performance Process. Very important not to call it Performance Process. I think that would bother him a lot. In, in Ronan's podcast, he dives deep into all the gear and training optimization you need to go faster. Oh, Dave's putting up his finger. Oh, what no. you got? Keep going. Sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, we also have members-only episodes of Geek Warning that'll run every other week on top of the regular weekly shows, so definitely don't miss those either. Uh, and yeah, as I mentioned earlier, we still have that holiday special going, so if you have been on the fence about signing up for Escape Collective, now is the time to head over to escapecollective.com slash Christmas to claim your free t-shirt with an annual membership. And if that is all still 
still too much to ask. The least you can do for us is head over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review since that actually does help more people find the show. Hmm. Yes. Uh, and yeah, personally, just if you can, just send it to a friend that might like it, you know. Mention it in the group. Send ride. it to someone you don't like. Yeah, just send it to whoever. Yeah, send it to a cousin that doesn't even ride bikes. Start robocalling people. Yeah. Maybe, all right. Maybe don't robocall people. Just leave a post-it note on the office fr- on the office fridge. Geek warning. Listen to it. <laughs> Perfect. We should actually have geek warning stickers made up now that I think about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, uh, no. Right. What I was going to add is, um, Tour Down Under is just around the corner, which kicks off the racing season, and that's my local race that I'm. Uh, that I always cover and or haven't covered for the last few years, but traditionally always cover, uh, which is a first look at all the new tech in the racing world, both men's and women's. Uh, but yeah, I guess the exciting announcement is that Ronan appears to be uh, have booked flights and will be joining me on the ground. So uh, yeah, expect banter in person with Ronan and I. Uh, expect Ronan to really geek out on the race tech and me to try pull them back to reality just a little bit uh and yeah i'm excited for it i'm i don't think i'll be able to persuade him to bring a gravel bike instead of a road bike to adelaide but uh but yeah that's probably not a battle i win so i might not try well as a friend of mine likes to say gravel is where you ride not what you ride so there you go <laughs> Ronan, just go Ronan, go ahead and get those 28s on some gravel Sweet. see how it goes yeah so anyway uh he'll be fine for that and yeah it's it's less no it's it's a week out so yeah expect uh content to start flowing in seven to ten days perfect and while you and ronan are busy on the ground i'm gonna go ahead and go back on vacation so Sounds good. i'm just gonna go ahead and check out <laughs> all right well that'll do it for us this week uh thanks again for listening again uh and we'll see you next time for another episode of geek warning cheers